1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up
0: now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
0: 18 plus. I'd like to take a moment and have a real heart to heart with you. If you're able right now, place your hand over your heart. Can you feel it? That's your heartbeat telling you that you're alive. It's the same for a pre-born baby. Their heart begins to form at conception. And at just three weeks, it's already beating. At five weeks, a baby's heartbeat can be heard on ultrasound. And that's why we've partnered with Preborn, because we need to help these precious babies. Every day, Preborn's networks of clinics rescue 200 babies from abortion. When a mother with an unplanned pregnancy meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine encounter. That doubles a baby's chances at life. And by six weeks, the eyes are forming. By 10 weeks, a baby is able to suck his or her own thumb. And for just $28, you could be the difference between life or death of a child. All gifts are tax deductible, and I want you to donate. All you have to do is just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250, keyword baby. You can also donate securely at preborn.com slash verdict. That's preborn. .com/verdict or pound 250 and say the keyword baby. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money, but are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. And for a limited time, you can watch the first 10 minutes for free at HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben, HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben.
1: 2020 has been a year of surprises, impeachment, riots, plague, murder hornets, and perhaps most shocking of all, a progressive is joining Verdict. I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz. Welcome back to Verdict with Ted Cruz. Such a pleasure to be here, as always, with the senator and our progressive guest. Actually, I don't know that that term totally encapsulates our guest. Eric Weinstein, mathematician, managing director of Teal Capital, founder of the intellectual dark web, and the the title that you suggested to me, imposter. Guilty. (laughs) Thank you very much for being with us.
2: Michael, great pleasure to be here, and thank you, Senator, for inviting me.
3: Th- th- thank you for joining us. So so, so you suggested imposters. That leads to the natural question. Imposter what?
2: Just about everything. Okay. I mean, I think that part of the problem is, is that credentialism has given us a, a culture of silos. And therefore, because everyone's terrified of violating the Dunning-Kruger principle, effectively, we don't have people roaming around the cabin uh, or with all-access passes. So so,
3: so, so assume theoretically that 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 there's one listener out there uh, who may be a lawyer and 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 an elected member of the Senate who doesn't know what the Dunning Kruger principle is. The
2: idea that um, people in general, when they're not very talented, uh, tend to overestimate their competence in various fields. May
3: explain why I didn't know what it was.
2: <laughs> well, it'll show up in the comments of the YouTube That's version. Right,
3: right. All right, all right. So, how does Dunning Kruger compare to the Peter Principle?
2: Well, I think that the Peter Principle has to do with systems of selective pressures so that in a previous world where corporate ladders and the like actually yep. functioned, which many of our younger viewers won't know anything about because the corporate ladder hasn't worked for a great deal of time, people would advance by merit to the point in which um, they would find that they were first incompetent and then they would stop there. And effectively, you would go one step beyond where your competency lot lay. Yep. Yep. I, th- I think that... Um, The Peter principle really doesn't function because what you right now have is an insane situation whereby people like myself, who are about 55 years old, 54 technically, uh, have never even started our careers because of the holding pattern that we find uh, having to do with a tremendous number of people in the silent and boomer generations. And given that we, uh, you know, holding, holding the important chairs and at least in, for example, in academics, when we get rid of things like mandatory retirement. Uh, you have a very interesting situation whereby lots of talented people never had the chance to come up. And so in terms of progressivism, one of the things that's really important to understand is that in many ways, the market is not actually functioning Mm. to uh, promote talent and that there's a great Mm. deal of skepticism about whether meritocracy can continue to be a part of the American story. And then what we're finding is is that uh, in the absence of a functioning meritocracy, Maoism is becoming incredibly important is being embraced by one of our two major parties, Mm. And I think Maoism is very distinct from progressivism.
3: Yeah, so so I definitely want to get get there, but I'm, I'm I actually want to pause on something you said because it's it's interesting. So you've had extraordinary academic career. You have a PhD in mathematics. No, I haven't had
2: an extraordinary academic career. <laughs>
3: you, you have know, an extraordinary they, credential. And uh, my credentials, credentials are, 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 are quite acceptable. Uh, and and you're now managing partner Teal Capital in in. In at least most external worlds, that would be, so you, so, so you said you had not yet started your career. I'm fascinated what that.
2: Well, you're it, descended from mathematicians and I, computer programmers, I, I, am I correct? I
3: am. Both, both my parents are, are mathematicians. Right. And, your and your mother was a
2: mathematician from Rice, if, if I'm uh, not mistaken. She,
3: uh, class of 56 from Rice. My dad, class of 61 from Texas. Very and They impressive. both became p- computer programmers at, at really the dawn of the computer age. So, And uh, until I was about 15... Um, I, I thought the path I was going to go was electrical engineering and computer science. So
2: as interesting as making money and, um, you know, getting to advise one of the world's most brilliant venture capitalists and investors uh, is I really still think of myself as a, an academician. And mm-hmm. I happen to find myself in the business world, like mm-hmm. many people who come from academics and found that the uh, the university system was absolutely Uh, unworkable uh, as we're currently Hmm. seeing. And so effectively, I'm always interested in getting back to mathematics, physics, and economics, uh, finance risk at a theoretical level. And there simply really isn't a career path. Is is your love of
3: teaching, of research, of writing when when you view a a fully formed and blossomed academic life, what what would it entail? Well, the
2: the great danger is that I love teaching and it's important Mm. not to teach. Um, because research is far more important, far more frustrating. And because we've housed both teaching and research in our universities, people are very confused. And I frequently compare it to the biathlon. I remember as a child, when I learned that there was an Olympic sport that combined cross-country skiing and shooting, I thought it was about the dumbest and funniest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) And in part, we are very confused about the research university because we keep thinking that universities are principally about teaching. But I don't think that that's their most interesting aspect. I think if you look at, for example, Rockefeller University, uh, which has uh, no undergraduates, uh, University of California, San Francisco, fine uh, biomedical university, no undergraduates, the Institute for Advanced Study doesn't even have graduate students. It's very important that we learn that previous generations put our research and our teaching in the same place. And the teaching is what's getting us into tremendous trouble.
3: So I, I have to admit, I always thought the biathlon was an Olympic sport designed for James Bond. <laughs> well,
2: it seems like that. But if you think about the Winter War, uh, uh, Finland versus the, the Soviet Union, uh, the reason that tiny Finland was able yeah. to hold off the giant bear was is that they particularly excelled uh, at skiing and shooting. Not only that, they did have the good idea that you probably should wear white if you're going to be against... Snow and ice, so that the enemy finds it harder to see.
3: Well, and I got to say, there's not a great historical pedigree between, behind people fighting wars in and around Russia in the winter So, so that's that's all very the more impressive. impressive. <laughs> yes, that that is. Well, I'd like to pick up on this point of the academy yes, and yes. of Some
1: camouflage, of as a matter of fact, very because good. because you have not fit in very well in the academy,
3: and this is very odd to me. You have a degree, which a, is a damn fine point, Michael and I today did a yes. book podcast on Aldous right. Huckley's Brave New World and yeah. not fitting in, I have to say, particularly after discussing that this afternoon, yeah. not fitting in maybe about as high a compliment as one can give in to, this a, brave to an world. individual in this brave new world yeah. who dares think for himself. Well, so the,
1: what is it? what, what went wrong in, in the universities? Well, that... the,
2: the universities are the system which has the, um, the biggest problem with egos. Now, mm. people don't understand what an ego is. Okay. So you see... The US had an exceptional run of it between 1945 and about 1971 through 73, yeah. where we had broadly distributed, very stable, technologically led growth. And this high level of growth caused us to predicate our institutions on an expectation of growth. Now, that expectation mysteriously changed around 1971 through 73. And this is the important singularity that we went through that many people don't even know existed. Mm-hmm. In fact, There is now a website, um, which I'm very relieved to uh, to be able to point to, which is called WTF Happened in 1971. (laughs) So I recommend that to all of your your viewers
1: and listeners. I
3: suppose I should be really disappointed since I was born in December of
1: 1970. Yes. You (laughs) you know, correlation is not causation. That's one of the few (laughs) things I learned in college, but I can hang our hat on that.
2: So what happened was that all of our institutions, and I think this is one of the most important stories that very few people know, all of our institutions have an expectation of growth that you have so many years that you spend as an associate before you become the partner in a law firm or in a medical practice, or you're an associate professor before you're you're given tenure. Now what happened uh, was that those growth expectations couldn't be met in the same way that a plane has a stall speed. Hmm. And so when all of these institutions stalled out at once, because there was an implicit expectation of growth in the university systems one professor might hope to leave between 20 and 30 students who would also hope to become professors. Yeah. Now, that had to do with the fact that the university system was expanding from approximately educating 8% of the population at post-secondary level to over to around 50%. Um, that was possible for a brief period of time to actually use the contributions of apprentice labor. Hmm. And what happened was is that the universities had the most aggressive Uh, stall speed or ego. So if they didn't move fast enough, they became pathological before other institutions became pathological. Now, the problem that we're having that very few people understand is a universal failure of institutions to be able to provide for the people who buy into the idea of contributing in and getting something out. That could be a pension. uh, That that could be an expectation of permanent employment and, and being a shareholder inside of such an institution. What happened was, is that the universities were the first to need emergency assistance. Mm -hmm. And they effectively got that during the Reagan era. Sorry to tell you the bad news. It was a conservative era um, where the National Science Foundation, the National Academy of Sciences had to team up in order to effectively rescue the universities if they weren't going to put in more money. And so what we came up with was a brilliant idea. We would lie about American scientists and engineers. We would say that they were lousy and that they weren't interested in contributing to this very demanding profession. And by the way, we have a a universe filled with the best and the brightest in four countries in Asia, and we should just bring them over in large numbers. Mm -hmm. Because what we'd always done is we had a labor force that was based on apprentice labor. So the students are actually the workers, but by calling them students, you don't have to pay them, you don't allow them to unionize. And then by doing this on foreign visas, you talk about educating the world, but you don't actually... Admit that what's going on is is that you're coming up with people who are willing to accept visas as payment, because there are no professorships for most people to take over.
3: Mm. Now, I, you consider yourself a man of the left. Yes, it, it, it is interesting the the view you're laying out of of immigration posing a threat to American jobs, because that at least in today's political world is a view. Most associated, not exclusively, but most associated with the right, and in fact, associated with Trump to some extent. Well,
2: the, the, unfortunately, what this really is, is it's closer to Agatha Christie's murder on the Orient Express. You had the okay. Wall Street Journal proposing um, a constitutional amendment, there shall be open borders. Yep. Yeah. You have uh, people on the, you know, the, the Sierra Club used to oppose immigration, maybe Cesar Chavez, uh, not typically associated with the right, would have been an opponent. Uh, of immigration. So it has changed? nothing to do... Well, it has nothing... Wh- you, what you have to understand is that the idealism of every era is usually the cover story of a theft.
1: Right? I, I want to I pause there for a moment. Say that again because that strikes me as an important point. Okay. The idealism
2: uh, and, and the sloganeering of every era is typically the fig leaf hmm. that is put over the greed of one party uh, goring the ox of another. So what would be an example? Well, for example, in the 80s, you'll remember that competitiveness was was a rallying cry. And competitiveness was about trying to get American unions to give up hard-won advances uh, for the the national good. So it was a patriotism that was associated with understanding we're going to have to tighten our belts, we're going to have to get into fighting shape, and that was going to be painful, but we were all going to be better off on the other side. So after PATCO was destroyed, again, problem of, of the Reagan, uh, time, uh, what you then had was the next phase, which was we are the world hmm. and the, we are the world globalization narrative was about breaking the bonds that, uh, tie our fellow, uh, ourselves to our fellow Americans. So the idea is if we could just get rid of the rights of hillbillies and, and Appalachians of blacks, uh, of various people inside of the U.S., What we could then do is relocate all of these factories and and various opportunities overseas to get access to other labor. And then when uh, Bill Clinton and Dick Morris figured out that the Republicans had this great thing going, they wanted to get in on the act, so they got really aggressive about it. And then we have things like NAFTA, and one of the really interesting things that you have recently is people like economist Brad DeLong, who was one of the architects of NAFTA, admitting, you know, tearing off the mask and saying you do realize that um, what we were optimizing was a social, social wealth welfare function that was intrinsically social Darwinism because it actually benefited you by the cube of your wealth. And then his point was, I don't understand why we're getting so much hate. Look at all the good we did for peasants in Mexico, which is a little bit of a weird thing to say when you trick American voters into voting something. And then after the fact, you say, sure, it may have, may have made some of you worse off in Ohio and Michigan, But look at all the good... It's good for the other country. ...that that we (laughs) did in Nairie. So 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 let me
3: ask your view. Assume, for the sake of argument, that the objective is to benefit Americans in the United States. To benefit jobs, to benefit their economic welfare, to make their lives better. In your view, what would be the optimum immigration and or trade regime that, that would maximize the economic condition for Americans? Well,
2: first of all, it's a great question. Uh, I have to show that I'm not, there's nothing xenophobic about this. So I've written a paper called Migration for the Benefit of All, peer-reviewed uh, economic paper about how you can open a border ethically by using co immigration that is most Americans' most valuable possession is actually asymmetric access to their labor market. And we don't realize mm. that that is actually mm. the source of our wealth. Now, the, again... But could you, if you wouldn't mind, put that in layman's terms. Sure. You have the right to your own labor market. Given that your, com- your country maintains a right to conscript you, to tax yeah. you. Yes. Part of the social contract is that you get a share in your country's wealth through having a right. Now, the interesting part about it is if we can just get your right declared red tape or an impediment to the free market, then I can take your right without having to pay you anything for it. Now, this is, in fact, a violation of free market economics. So Let the me va- ask,
3: what, what does it mean to have a right to a market? I understand. You know, something called labor a-
2: certification. So when you, get labor, when you have labor certification, yeah. you have to go through a certain amount of... So a of-
3: high-tech worker to come in, there has to be a certification that there's not... They are not U.S. workers able, to fill that need.
2: Yes, and in okay. fact, yeah. Uh, yeah, we should not make labor certification easy because part of mm-hmm. what forces us to renew is putting our businesses under pressure so what I, one of the things that i find very interesting so i'm now going to say something pro-right after i've been anti-right yes i
1: because i just for for those who are struggling to keep catch up as i am you've just come out and criticized the reagan era you have you've, you've uh, built up your left-wing but, but bona fides clear,
3: he's criticized the reagan era yeah. for too much big government yeah, right, right which i'm actually perfectly fine with that criticism right.
1: of. And, and then eric you've gone back and attacked the left for or at least I suppose we'd call it the modern left, for its open borders or, well, or advocation, uh, uh, advocacy of high-skilled high high-skill immigration.
2: It didn't advocate for high-skilled immigration. It lied. Hmm. Effectively, what you did is you got the National Science Foundation and the National Academy of Sciences to stab American scientists in the back hmm. on behalf of scientific employers. And so all of the sloppy talk about best and brightest um you know, so, so,
3: if Tim Cook were sitting here, Tim Cook would argue that they need access to, to Chinese and Indian engineers Tim and Cook computer
2: science. Tim Cook would scientists.
3: never sit here if I'm <laughs> on set. <laughs> no, L- no, 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 let's no. imagine the hypothetical, or tell you, me why. You cause... would have
2: to chain him to a radiator, or you would have to wheel him <laughs> in. the That's why we,
3: we have those tools in this podcast. That's <laughs> well, true. That's, that's part of our Hollywood setup here. No,
2: but it's very important. It's one of the reasons why people won't invite me to talk about it. I mean, there is essentially no, no one uh, at my level. That I know of, who's openly against high skilled immigration, is the worst part of our immigration. Yes, this policy. has struck
1: me as a position you can't say. You can say it on things like podcasts, which is why I think you have a successful podcast and why people lis- listen to this show too. And
3: let's segue. This is fascinating, but I, I, I don't want to miss a major portion of, of this topic, which is you. And I told you we'd get back to this. You made reference to to the modern left, to to, to some or even many becoming Maoist. Yes and and And, for the listeners, I, I think I know what you mean, but tell us what you mean by that. Well,
2: you have a very weird coupling on on the on the technical left. So, with Dick Morris and Bill Clinton effectively becoming a second Republican party, yeah, you then had a problem with which is how do I replace organized labor labor as a voting block? And my wife, Pia Malani's great insight here was she's an economist with the Institute for New Economic Thinking, a okay. Soros funded. Uh, institute.
1: <laughs> now we've got the, the left-wing bona fides again. All right, I'm okay. reoriented.
2: Uh, her point was that uh, you need something cheaper than labor because labor makes economic demand. So there's always mm. a search for who's willing to accept the least. And the thing that you can actually get voters with for people who are willing to accept very little has been identity politics. So the idea is that identity politics is the is the electoral substitute for organized labor that was lost after... Bill Clinton and Dick Morris decided that you had to have two Republican parties in order to not have more than 12 years of continuous one-party rule.
1: And one sees memos going around the internet, for instance, from mega corporations that, that actually show executives at some major corporations have relied on identity politics to divide up labor in, in the hopes that they wouldn't unionize. So in so identity
3: but the, politics, but by that you mean my characteristics, whether it is that I, I am a male, whether it is that I am... Cuban American, or Irish, or Italian, or whether it is that I am straight, or 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 I don't, whatever other categories we can slice ourselves into demographically. It is thinking of ourselves in those pege- pigeonholes, and then I, I suppose you mean also perceiving by virtue of those characteristics that you are victimized and need to. Uh, Need protection. Need 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 something to prevent that victimization from others. Is that is that what you mean, or tell me what you mean?
2: It's well, it's exactly right. I mean, what you have is a situation. I think that this, uh, in some sense, ties back to probably the 2010 midterm elections, where I think that Barack Obama, who had not been interested in identity politics particularly, and had wanted more unity. Uh, saw an opening, which I think was coming from the observation of the Colorado Senate election, if I'm not mistaken. And shortly thereafter, you had a dear colleague letter that went out from the Obama administration warning universities to be on their best behavior um, with respect to uh, safety issues, because I think uh, feminist issues were part of what made uh, Colorado the bright spot for the Democrats in a Republican uh, election. And so, effectively, what you did is you started a search mm-hmm. for a very aggressive dem- demographic, for which for a period of time, uh, people were satisfied with simply being recognized and being the thrill of reflection. And by the way, you know, the Maoists have lots of points that are correct. It's not that they're so, wrong so, about everything. So, so,
3: for those not experts on. Chinese history and, and political theory. Well, what is a Maoist in, in a sentence or two?
2: Well, what I'm really interested in is the experience of the Red Guard, where we just, you know, you, there's a point where you have to get rid of the intelli- the intelligentsia in order to have yeah. a blank slate for a new world. So effectively what you do is you go after the professors, the doctors, yeah. the professionals, and you, you have to have some way of clearing, you know, if you're going to if you're going to build something very often, you have to raise whatever trees and houses are previously there.
3: Now, now you also have personal experience, both yourself as an academic, but but your brother was also an academic and, and paid a, a, a real price from the victimization culture. I think, would you, would you care to just share what, what happened to your brother and what well, your thoughts are it's on It's
2: important it. because most Many Democrats have never heard of my brother, whereas almost all Republicans have heard of my brother. Yes. And this has to do with the fact that the Democratic uh, allied media Mm -hmm. mysteriously no longer reports news that is counter narrative, which is something I associate with sort of the right wing um, media uh, as well. So I've, you know, I've gone on Fox and said that Fox is I, I consider in large measure a propaganda machine. Um, but the left has, has has learned that they need to do the same thing. And so effectively, they didn't cover the fact that there was a Maoist insurrection at um, Evergreen State College, which is under the same governor who allowed the Capitol Hill exclusion zone yeah. uh, where the police were shoved out. And uh, it, almost immediately, people died. Surprise, surprise. Right. Um, so, you know, the Pacific Northwest is experimenting with an extremely dangerous cocktail yeah. of this neo or cultural Maoism, effectively, um, with government support. Now, I have to say that the right behaved much more sensibly because the left has abandoned what we'd previously associated as uh, progressive and liberal values with free speech uh, going back to the 60s and the 50s. And I've called this reversal from right to left, left left-cartheism. So the problem of left-cartheism Again, you know, I I don't have any particular allegiance to one party or the other because they're both useless to me. Um, What I see is just a completely unworkable leadership class that is strayed from traditional American values. And whether you're progressive or conservative or libertarian, the main thing right now is to get back to smart as opposed to stupid. So
1: you've drawn this distinction here, and I think it's one that we see a lot on college campuses, and in our politics and in our media, which is between Maoism or Marxism, this hard radical left, and what we would have once called liberalism. let mm. Liberal, not left. Yes. And people like Dave Rubin and, and others have talked about this. You would call yourself, I suppose... A liberal or a progressive in the old sense, uh, Barry Weiss, who's written about uh, the intellectual dark web, which you founded and talks about these things. Barry Weiss has just left the New York Times because they are too hard left for her. And she's an old school liberal. They're not liberal. hard left. They're not. They're nuts. <laughs> well, th- those are synonymous in my well, but, mind.
2: But stupid and crazy shouldn't be a part of a political spectrum. That hmm. should be a mental condition. So,
3: so I'll tell tell a story. When I was a first year law student at Harvard. Yeah. Uh, my criminal law professor was Alan Dershowitz. He, yeah. he remains a good friend. And, and I remember a couple of things he said in the criminal law class. Uh, one of the things he said, and you were talking about uh, people overestimating their capabilities, I remember him saying, one thing that is true, even at Harvard Law School, is that 50% of the class is in the bottom half. <laughs> and that, that, That's true. Uh, that made an impression, but he also made a point. He said, listen, by any measure, I, Alan Dershowitz, am in the most liberal 1% of the American populace. On, on almost any policy issue, my views are on the left. And yet he made the point then, which it became even more true in later years, he said, on this faculty, I, I'm considered in some ways a conservative or reactionary because I believe in free speech. I believe in disagreement. I don't believe in silencing my critics. What year this? I believe this was would have been 90... Ninety-two or ninety-three. So I, I forget if I took on spring or, fall, or or fall, but it was either fall of ninety-two or spring of ninety-three.
2: Things changed a lot between. You know, I, I arrived at Harvard in the mid nineteen eighties, and when was Bork? Eighty-seven. So I remember Alan Dershowitz uh, talking about Bork, and Bork is a is one of the most confusing aspects of a domestic dispute between the two parties where effectively the Democrats viewed it as I can't believe you would betray us by putting Bork forward. The Republicans said, I can't believe you would betray us by, by deciding by that you were going it. to scuttle this nomination because J-
1: judge Bork for those who don't remember back in 1987 was this conservative judge he's nominated by Ronald Reagan and Teddy Kennedy leads the charge against him it's it was a character assassination it was considered the the beginning of this really brutal confirmation process that now seems to happen every time we and nominate in fact he has
3: the distinction uh, of having been verbized, which verbized, I will confess, is a term I think I've coined. I don't know anyone else who's used it in that his name has become a verb to this day to be borked yeah. is to go through the experience, the Clarence Thomas experience, the Brett Kavanaugh experience, which is a confirmation hearing that is brutal. Actually, Tony Lake, uh, Bill Clinton was nominated under Bill Clinton. He wrote a letter withdrawing his nomination and, and, and with apologies to Hobbes' Leviathan said that said the, the the confirmation process is nasty and brutal without being short and, <laughs> and, and, on and, on. and Bork ushered in a whole new era of nasty personal. Yeah.
2: Well, but this is the problem with a blood feud where yep. if you can't agree what the there, there are two stories about what happened around Bork. And let me just say something yep. self-critical on the left uh, to amuse you because I'm <laughs> going to go back to bashing the right. Okay. Well, I'll that's, enjoy that's, this
1: while it lasts. Sure. All right.
2: Um, there is a perspective on the left which had to do with the Warren court in the 60s, which is we can afford not to be the dominant force politically mm-hmm. as long as we have our own power base. And the power base might be in the media, mm-hmm. and it might be in the universities, it might be in the court. So very often what you find in my circles is we can't have Trump again. Why? Because of the court, the court, the court, the court. Always. Now what, Fascinating. And what that, that is... is that, Because
3: that's what the right says too, that... that What I hear from the left is rarely as much of a focus on the court. So I think that's just just an interesting insight because our echo chambers are sometimes different.
2: This is what causes people to say, don't experiment with third party candidacies. Don't experiment with populism. We can never afford to actually deal with our own values because the primary issue is making sure that they don't get nine out of nine conservative Supreme Court justices legislating on all sorts of things that are sacred to the left. So the left's, the the thinking left's traditional perspective, flawed as it may be, is we can afford to have democracy as long as we have very strong power bases, maybe in Hollywood, maybe in the press, maybe in the universities, maybe in the court, we can afford to lose the presidency and the Congress regularly. Now, that concept of a second balance of power, a Mexican standoff, with apologies to our neighbors to the South, or I... Personally, I just think it's a great concept. Uh, so <laughs> I, I would be thrilled if I were Mexican.
3: Yeah,
2: um, That has not been understood. And what effectively the the left believed until the Reagan revolution was we have an idea that the court should be this kind of uh, upper class, uh, very cerebral thing that is a counter to our populist instincts. Yeah. And of course, Bork wasn't necessarily anti Intellectual, but he's viewed as a, an intellectual on the right, but it was viewed as a violation of a tacit understanding, which the right didn't necessarily understood. <laughs> right, <laughs> understand, right. and as a result, there are two different origin stories of the nastiness that will go on forever until we get family counseling. So the reason I'm bringing this up on your show is is that there's a question: Can we go back and say, look, when? We're going to keep borking everybody all the time.
3: So, so, so mm. I do have to, for the record, put a, a caveat that only one side do, does the borking. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed, I think, 98 to nothing. Uh, Steve Breyer. I, 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 if you look at, at where the nasty personal attacks are coming from, I suspect the counter argument you'll give is Merrick Garland. But Merrick Garland was you never personally attack. But but he was never personally attacked. And what the Senate said with regard to the Scalia vacancy that occurred in February of a presidential year is no Senate had filled a vacancy that occurred in a presidential year in 80 years. And regardless of whom the president nominated, we were going to let the election decide. I get you likely disagree with that, but. But, it was not a personal attack on Judge Garland, who hadn't been nominated. There, there was no Michael disgusting. Avenatti Look,
2: for Judge Garland. I am furious. Or
3: for Breyer, for so or for Cagan, for, for any I am furious with the nominal the left.
2: Court. Yeah. Okay. So it's not that I'm sitting here. The reason I'm bringing this up is because more of us need to understand our history because our grandparents did not correctly tell us what. What our country is like the, the idea that the yeah. Warren Court, for example, is a sacred thing from yeah. the left. Yeah. Um, which in fact probably overreached a fair amount, and then some of that had to be rolled back. Okay, so now you have this problem that the, the the intellectual progressives of that era had tasted something that they thought was, you know, William O. Douglas was this is the greatest thing that could happen. Too much got advanced, they got used to something. We then have this contentious history, honestly, to be blunt about it, I'm much more worried about the American project than I'm worried about the democratic or the Republican or the conservative. Yeah, or the, yes. Right. And so th- the key thing is it's important that we go back and like, if you will agree that maybe the Merrick Garland thing wasn't terrific, i'll agree that the just things- just for the record i am not willing
3: to agree so i'm willing to say we can we'll agree to disagree I,
2: but but i can dig in here and then we can screw up the interview <laughs> it's up to you guys
3: i i, I, I concede that that you believe that in a, a heartfelt and genuine this way. this is
2: the problem of the game theory i'm sort yeah. of more adventurous if you guys don't want to play ball i' I'm, I'm willing to i'm willing to <laughs> dig into but i don't want
3: so, so I, I do think that there, there's some other points that 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 are fruitful that are not going to result in, as, as, as you suggested, well, the diff- a Mexican standoff. The,
2: the differential application, for example, with Judge Kavanaugh and Joe Biden of rules around the emerging Me Too uh, yeah. weapon mm-hmm. um, yeah. nice, nicely showcases the point that you guys should be making. Hmm. But what I'm going to say is just just a word to the wise, to my friends on the right. If you choose not to actually see the point of the left, and you allow the left to say, "Hey, maybe we didn't do something that was so terrific, and then you take your victory lap, kiss your future appointments sailing through based on legal merit goodbye so you, so
1: you think you really think it that this national divide uh, you know the family counseling that we need it comes down to this moment in the eighties with the with the courts specifically so and, and no, no, you, no 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 okay. it
2: comes down to the fact that we lost growth
1: hmm. So it goes back further. It Look, goes back further than all the All of the
2: crazies and creepies that are roaming the American stage at the moment yeah, were present in every era. The Ku Klux Klan was present. Right. Yeah. The, the the anarchists were present. Yeah. But the, the key issue is that when you're dealing with pathogens, if you have a functioning immune system, you don't know about the pathogens. If you want to know who understands the pathogens in the system, it's the immunocompromised. Huh. When we lost growth, we became immunocompromised and all the creepy crawlies are coming out from every particular mm. place. They're coming out from the right, they're coming out from the left. And there's one move that can save the Republic in my opinion, which is that the the core left and the core right who haven't become insane yeah. have to realize that they have more interest in each other than they do in their own wings. Right. And so the idea is if you think we have a word in Yiddish called the starker, yeah. starker is the muscle. If the left sees Antifa as its muscle, right, and the idea is that the right sees I don't know, the Proud Boys or Patriot Prayer, or some far right group. Uh,
3: right. By the way, no one on the right sees the Proud Boys; they're bigoted idiots, and and it it, it it's just a it,
2: Antifa is a bunch of lunatics. But okay. but here
3: but here's here's a difference just in the political world, and I get that you're coming from the academic and and and. Um, and, investment and podcast world, world for, for, and, for and that podcast yeah. world. Yeah. But I am more than happy. I, as far as I know, I've never met a proud boy. I think they're igoted, bigoted morons. My colleagues, if you had a Democratic senator sitting here, none of them will condemn Antifa. So I'll condemn those guys. Those are not my guys. Well, you I don't have, have, no have a alliance.
2: senator. You have a guy who's never going to run for the Senate. And I'll <laughs> condemn Antifa. Great. Yeah.
3: Wonderful. And we are, are agreed with uh, that. This and I'm the, against anyone who's bigoted or but violent. But what
2: we're trying to do here is we're trying to model what an American yeah. conversation yeah. is yeah. supposed Good. to be as opposed to a partisan conversation. Right. And what that is, is we continually check in with each other and say, you know, we did some yeah. wrong stuff, but we did it because we thought we were reacting to you. Yeah. And then you walk things back. Huh. But the problem is... You know, in control theory, when you have positive feedback, when the idea is, you know, I do something because you did it, but you thought that I did, then the idea is you can just kiss your future goodbye.
1: Well, you know, on this point, because I think we would certainly agree, every conservative I know would agree that we care more about our country than we do about any particular partisan victory at any particular moment. And yet we're at this moment.
3: And and actually, Michael, I'm going to now push back on you and agree Mm -hmm. Now, look. That, that there maybe every conservative, maybe maybe not, but there are certainly Republicans who are interested in partisan I agree. battles. I Yes, you know, you're and, right, you're and, right. and, and so 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 there That's is true. partisanship and and misbehavior on both and, sides and, a, and, and, a, and um, a
1: misprioritization of of where we should be thinking of things. However, mm-hmm. there's this difference right now where the mainstream left, led by these radical loony activists, but now this is spread to the mainstream they seem to be disrespecting the country itself. They will protest the flag, the symbol of the country itself.
3: But before we get to this, I don't, I don't want to miss what we touched on what happened to your brother, but we Mm -hmm. didn't tell the story. And so for those who are listening or watching, I think it'd be helpful to tell. My brother
2: was an anti-racist who left an Ivy league education at the university of Pennsylvania because he stood up for black women being exploited by a Jewish white fraternity. Yeah. Um, And he was, you know, he was, uh, Got death threats. Uh, got the Golden Gazelle Award for the National Organization of Women. Became a professor at Evergreen State University or Evergreen State College as a biologist. Um, only to find out that effectively the problem with racism was black racism against whites, hmm. and there was an extremely hardline sort of cultural Marxist perspective where anti-racists in name were actually racists. They defined it so that racism was impossible. right? And therefore, (laughs) you had this counter narrative to the, let's say, the New York Times narrative-driven journalism, which said that um, these black students were, in fact, besieged by racism. And so my brother, as a staunch anti-racist, was being attacked by by racists who were calling themselves anti-racist. So the whole thing was incredibly confusing. And only one journalist, effectively, at the New York Times- got in early on that. And her name was Barry Weiss, who resigned today. And I've been talking to Barry about this for some time. Um,
3: so, so I don't know, Barry. Tell me a bit. I, I read her letter today. Sure. I, I thought it was extraordinary. So I'm interested in... Hey, tell me a little bit about her and what are your thoughts at, 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 at what happened at the New York Times and what she said?
2: Um, the New York Times is going through... Let's <laughs> create a, a, a new word, evergreening. The evergreening of an institution is the point at which the people that the Times probably hired thinking, oh, well, we have an aging readership. We're a legacy media organization. Let's get some hip kids uh, to get more clicks and more younger viewers. And the idea is that all those kids were supposed to become somewhat more liberal and moderate as they acquired uh, significant others, children, and mortgages. Yeah. And that didn't happen. And in fact, what happened was is that they began to take over the very institution that was hoping to exploit them yeah. effectively.
3: And for clarification, when you say they hired young campus radicals in the hope and expectation they would become somewhat more liberal, um, help listeners understand on what axis, what more liberal means? Because those those terms sometimes <laughs> have, have varying meanings. Very
2: good. But there's a huge problem that we need to get to, which is that the reason that we can't get out of our national nightmare at the moment is, is that the center has to make a move that it refuses to do. And the center, or the core, maybe it would be a better way of saying it, has to admit that it became kleptocratic. And so the corruption of the core left and the core right uh, means that there's nowhere to turn from the extreme. So whenever you say no to the extremes, the thing is oh are you telling me that we're going to be back to the core left and the core right and their extraction so if if you think about the United States as a family business yeah the family business was sensational between 1945 and the early 70s built up a tremendous amount of wealth but then you have a very rich family with a sputtering family business the first wave of concern probably through the middle of the Reagan administration was how do we restart growth so that we can get back to being ourselves yeah all of these supply side gimmicks and the offshoring and the downsizing and the financialization and all of these things were not good enough to actually deal with the underlying problem because it didn't have a diagnosis as to what actually happened back then. What it was good enough to do was to keep some slices of the pie growing at the expense of others. So the idea is that instead of seeing each other as a source of, um, camaraderie or military support or innovation, we started viewing each other as a source of protein. And then we started uh. the process of American self-cannibalization. Okay, well, that's part of what we did with NAFTA. That's part of what we did with our immigration policies. That's what the whole globalization stuff uh, really amounts to. So the idea is that right now what you have is you have certain sectors that grow by cannibalizing other sectors. And as a result, if we call that growth, we can fudge our national statistics. So
3: who are the winners and who are the losers? Who, who are the cannibals and who's dinner?
2: Well, it depends. In what car did you arrive to this meeting? That would be the question. Please don't answer that. But <laughs> the idea is, is that most of us know whether we're winners or losers. Um, you know, weirdly, um, if you're flying first class, you're probably a loser because the real winners are in a completely different airport or terminal altogether. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, And so the idea is we have an invisible winner class that doesn't necessarily even want to act like the winner class. Uh, some of those people, by the way, are winners because they contributed. And that was the traditional way. Others yeah. are winners because they figured out how to cannibalize somebody else. And so we have this very weird thing, which is that we have so much cannibalization that we've given up on merit because we now see merit as an excuse. And this is actually a fair point of the Maoists hmm. who don't see... Uh, A fair world. So there was an implicit sort of morality in market mechanisms. Now, as a person on the left, I'm a huge fan of markets. Why? Because there's nothing more progressive. The word progressive contains progress. Markets are what lift people up. Yeah. Now, when those markets become dominated by rent-seeking and political economy and capture...
3: Can't tell our listeners what rent-seeking means.
2: Well, rent-seeking is an economist's insult. It means that your source of wealth is non-productive,
0: mm-hmm.
2: So it's a technical term. We can get into what a rent is at an economic level, but just assume that the word rent is being used in a way that is different than you, you may, it's analogous to certain other forms of rent. But the key point is it's the debasing of market morality. Mm-hmm. There's a Judeo-Christian sort of aspect to the, the idea of a, of a functioning meritocracy in which we are rewarded in part, not in whole, but in part, based on our contribution. The market doesn't work perfectly. Even if yeah. the, an honest free market economist has to recognize that market failure is a part of every market.
3: So can you give people maybe an example of, on the one side, uh, productive meritocracy, someone creating a better mousetrap that increases productivity that benefits others, versus rent-seeking and cannibalization? Is there, is there an example you could give of, of, of the two?
2: Well, there's an origin story of a particular, um, particularly successful business that I believe began, which I won't mention, um, by recognizing that the Inuit had special rights to sell the loss, uh, to sell tax write offs from failing businesses. Mm-hmm. So when you notice that some group was given some right for some purpose, and you say, "Huh, here's something I can exploit," you know, so it's uh, an
3: arbitrage. You can arbitrage
2: yeah. something, and it's probably not the intended intended use. Um, but the, or, or for example, if I can, if I can successfully portray this man's, uh, right to, um, access his own labor market in a, uh, in an asymmetric way, and I can successfully portray him Hmm. as a leech on society, uh, then the idea is that I can say, I'm going to take your most valuable possession, uh, uncompensated. Um,
1: I feel like a true victim because people do this to me all the time when they call me a leech on society. Well, we're doing this <laughs> but in L.A. Yes, I, I think your point, yes, we're I think doing this point is, in
2: L.A. Dodger yes. Stadium, of course, is built on three towns uh, that were Hispanic, um, that were collectively known as Chavez Ravine. And the idea is that what we simply did, and it was, I believe, Republican led, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is that we actually took away private property by getting those towns condemned. And by condemning those towns, we were able, through uh, this mechanism, to remove a bunch of people so that we could uh, pave over the place and put a giant stadium in. Them.
3: But by the way, I, I'm, I'm perhaps a hopeless optimist in, in that multiple things that I've heard you say uh, are leading to me to believe that, that deep down you're much more conservative or libertarian than you realize— and, and perhaps that w- we'll see what that journey lies. But I, I will say that particular example, um, one major battle between left and right today, uh, particularly in the legal world and, and Supreme Court world, which is the world I came from before politics, uh, concerns property rights. And, mm. and there's a, a well-known case, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, Kelo versus City of New London. I don't know it. Um, so it concerned... New London, Connecticut, a woman uh, whose family home had been in her family for a hundred years. She was an older woman and New London, Connecticut condemned her home. And the reason they condemned her home is because Pfizer wanted to build a parking lot. And the city council of New London, Connecticut, they wanted Pfizer to be happy. So they condemned her home to give it to Pfizer, to give it to a private corporation for their benefit. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court and the constitution provides that, 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 Private property cannot be taken uh, uh, without just compensation, but it also provides that it has to be for a public use. Mm-hmm. And the question in Kilo mm-hmm. was, is condemning private property to give it to a private corporation, not for a freeway, not for a yeah. bridge, yeah. not for something that is for the public, but for a the private benefit of a corporation. Is that consistent with the Constitution? The Supreme Court, unfortunately, ruled five, four against, uh, the, the, the owner of, of the home. In New uh, thank London you for Connect. saying
2: the word, unfortunately. I mean, oh,
3: oh, it's, it's, it's a tragic decision. Okay. It's a horrific decision. I decried it at the time. And, and I, I was actually solicitor general of Texas and I was at a conference of the other SGs when it came down mm. and the other SGs were celebrating. This <laughs> is a victory for government power. And I remember looking at them saying, just because you can wear a jackboot doesn't mean you should <laughs> right what a terrible trampling on, yeah. on on private rights and 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 that and you will find I think many on the right and certainly on the libertarian right believe passionately in, in, in what you and I are both but saying.
1: But I suppose, Eric, it, it, I think your analogy is so apt, this this idea of, of devouring the other person. You know, when we love someone, we will the good of the other. And then when, I don't know, we lust after them, we just want to devour them, right? And there's this there's this difference here. And, and I totally see your points on this happening in the United States over the past several decades. However, implicit in wanting to come back together, have this family therapy, you know, lo- love one another again, love our fellow countrymen again, we have to sort of will the good of the country, don't we? And do you have this fear that there has been a mainstreaming of of not just not liking the other side, but actually not liking the country itself, the American project? Are you familiar itself?
2: with um, with Othello? Uh,
1: yeah, we were just talking about it today. As a matter of it, fact, it yes. features prominently in Brave New World, yes. which is it so
3: happens we were discussing.
2: <laughs> the Problem is Iago. Hmm. Now Iago deranges the uh, protagonist. I guess uh, Othello against his beloved Desdemona. And the, the idea is that by putting certain ideas into the head of Othello, mm. Othello will actually carry out the murder of Desdemona and figure out too late who has in oh. fact caused him to uh, destroy that which he loves. Now, right at the moment, we have a problem with the Iago media. Now, there's the uh-huh. Iago media uh, that is taking place within Fox News. We have the they, second
3: term we've coined, both of which the evergreening and the Iago, Iago media, media are both words. This is big. But we're getting headlines. Keeping. Sorry, today. I just had to. <laughs> I like that.
2: Term. Not every day a sitting senator asks me uh, okay. from an opposite <laughs> perspective to come, and uh, it, w- it would be rude not to.
3: <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so please continue. Yes. So, sorry for that. The,
2: uh, the Iago media is found both on the left and on the right. Everybody's yes. got a narrative. When the news is narrative aligned, they report the news. When the when the news is counter narrative, they either don't touch it at all, yeah. or they lie or they spin. There's right. another concept called Russell conjugation. For example, uh, so you, Russell
3: it, conjugation. Bertrand um, Russell, a yeah. uh, a
2: a Brit of some of some note, mm-hmm. uh, went on to the BBC and he said something which I think is fascinating. He noticed that the word synonym does not cover. Certain cases very well. For example, Fink versus whistleblower. Technically, they're both synonyms at a content level. Right. But the huh, emotional right. instruction is to hate the Fink and to praise the whistleblower, even though they're the same person. Now, Frank Luntz, uh, bizarre. As Frank is
3: a friend. I know. know yeah, yeah. I
2: went to college with Frank. Um, Frank Luntz did not know the term, but he effectively reinvented and weaponized. Uh, Russell conjugation. So the idea is that we are all against illegal aliens and we are for undocumented workers. Right. We right. oppose uh, the death tax, but we support an estate tax. And the fact is... Language
3: we is weaponized in politics and modern discourse.
2: Well, exactly. And so what we're where we are right now is we are in a situation in which our media derange us every day. Uh, and by the way, media is going to include tech to hate each other. Yeah. And so, te-
1: tech has become, and we talk about this all the time, when we talk about Section 230 and the Communications Decency Act, tech has become a sort of publisher, a participant in
2: the media. Tech is, tech is the new media. Yeah. And in this situation...
3: With greater power than the New York Times ever had.
2: Uh, amen, brother. Yeah. And so the problem that we're having is that what works as both business and politics is to get Othello to murder Desdemona on a daily basis. And that is what we play out as our heads are filled. We don't understand why we can't talk to our loved ones, why Thanksgiving dinners don't work. We're a little bit confused at, as to why not only is George Washington face down right. uh, from his podium with 1619 scrawled on it, and when somebody publishes, call them the 1619 riots, uh, the de facto uh, head of the New York Times, Nicole Hanna-Jones, says it would be an honor. Right, um, right. You laugh. I, and I, that's going to be taught in schools
3: cry. across the country. Six, the 1619 Project but the same thing is, is explicitly revisionist... the same thing is true yes, with, yes.
2: with libtards. I don't know what a libtard is. Do you?
3: I assume a pejorative for someone on the left. Although, uh, it's My not a term is, I use. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I haven't
2: used it myself. My yeah. point is that what we have is, is that we have a poisoned national dialogue in which... Wherever you consume your media, you are getting a constant set of emotional instructions. That is the concept yep. of Russell conjugation. And because we don't practice critical feeling, we know about critical thinking, yep. but we don't know that mm-hmm. most of our feelings are not our feelings, but feelings that we have inherited yes. through daily programming. And as a result, you know, for example, I know that you're evil and you're the devil, and I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah. But here I am. Well, that's a fact. I've
3: always
2: wanted to make a deal with the devil, but yeah. the devil never returns my phone calls. Um, the issue is... A better that, fiddle of gold against your soul. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, did you see the second one with Mark O'Connor? Huh. Oh, the greatest fiddle player another time. That's for the next episode. The... Um, <laughs> The situation that we're in is that we have to realize that we are being deranged, and therefore we can't even mount a a response to the COVID epidemic. That was a layup. You just have a Manhattan Project. You say, who are the smart people across virology, Mm -hmm. uh, epidemiology, mathematics, uh, economists, who are the geopolitical theorists? You immediately uh, expedite um, security clearances, you test them all, you get transport, you put them in a dorm with tons of whiteboards, lots of coffee, and you say, you're not going to see your family for two months. Get it done. We can't even do that.
1: Well, because well, so, ma- so many of those public health officials were writing politicized letters in defense of leftist protests to the tune of 1,200 at a time.
2: Not just. We also had a problem with our surgeon general who decided that masks uh, weren't a good idea or, or Dr. Fauci or the head of the CDC. And why? Because we have a problem that we lie about public health. Many people who go into public health believe in the public good and for the public to engage in um, beneficial behaviors that you're solving a massive prisoner's dilemma. Of course, it would be better if everybody else took a vaccine and you didn't have to in case there's any risk with the vaccine as an example of a typical coordination problem. So one of the problems that we have is, is that we told obvious lies. Now, the lie, the most important one, is, is that the academic literature had told us to stock um, supplies and ICU beds and make sure that we were ready for surges, because surges are situations in which you don't have a what would be called a Poisson process of random arrivals that determine your needs. You have a correlated event. So if you have rioting in a city, you're going to need much more policing suddenly. Yeah. We were completely unprepared, and because we were unprepared, we decided that what we would do is to lie to the American people and we would tell them things that made no sense. So either we might lie to them mm-hmm. from the Democratic side about the, the, the
3: inconsistencies that, were massive and head jerking and every American noticed them at one point yes, or another.
2: The idea is, is that Nancy Pelosi should resign. Donald Trump should resign. Anthony Fauci should resign. The head of the CDC should re- resign. We should not be talking to the WHO. We need to get the lying sons of bitches out of the chairs in which they have the ability to lie for some reason to the American public, which degrades our faith in government, in data, in science, and in reason. And quite honestly, it's much more important that we have faith that not all of our expert class uh, is psychopathic. Not all of them are on the take, Mm -hmm. that it isn't a war of the very rich and their experts against, you know, as expert witnesses, if you will, against the rest of us. Pretending to be objective, but actually carrying out the orders of somebody else. So we have a serious situation in which our entire leadership class of both parties, no offense, sir, is unworkable. And the inability, and I mean, I was tweeting about this quite openly, which is we are lying. What we are saying about masks not working is because we're covering for our own failure to heed our own literature. <laughs> we were bel- believing the first guys
1: instead of. Uh, it's a their, very oh. easy
2: speech that you give. You say, You know, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we have to level with the American public. We are unprepared and we can find fault and perhaps we should do so after the national emergency. But right now we need to pull together in order to make sure that our uh, first responders, our medical personnel, people who are on the front lines are protected. We don't have an inadequate supply of personal protective equipment, of ICU beds. The real reason that we need to flatten the curve is because we're trying to avoid what we might call um, deaths of discretion. Where we have a triage yeah. situation, and we saw
3: that in Italy, uh, tragically.
2: Yeah. Well, okay, but the point is, we have a limbo bar, and the limbo bar was too low, and that's <laughs> why we were flattening the curve. And the limbo bar was supposed to be higher, and I believe actually George W. Bush did better with this, and that it, this had then got drawn down under Obama, not replaced under Trump. And so whatever was going on with the PPE stuff, it was a failure of government mm-hmm. that we then foisted onto the shoulders of the American people. And, and this we is,
3: also had an enormous failure, failure with testing, particularly early on rolling it out. Well, it, it was,
2: we were completely incompetent. We'd, we'd outsource so much of our supply chain to China, not realizing yeah, that we have a geopolitical a rival. Because Massive,
3: of the, yeah. ca- catastrophic, tragic mistake we, we've got to change. Right. If, if I can s- sort of take it to a wrap-up point, And and see if there is. Oh, I thought we were going to do H1B, but okay. (laughs) uh, Let's see if there is any cause for optimism. How do we get from Othello to Midsummer Night's Dream? Oh.
2: Well, key issue is is that we have to start talking about our own failures. And Hmm. in part, uh, what I hope you've heard is, is that I'm willing to call out the left, the right, and the libertarian. Like the libertarian problem is that it doesn't work to pretend that we're all atomistic. We see that with uh, respect to contagion and masks and the like. Sure. Right. So um, Arnold Kling has this beautiful description. He says that you have three groups, progressives, conservatives, and libertarians. Libertarians are animated principally by hating coercion. Hmm. Progressives are animated principally by hating oppression and conservatives are principally animated by uh, needless loss of hard won traditions and gains over past generations. And the answer is is that any sensible person should want to make sure that they're optimizing among the three and not to become part uh, of a simplistic situation whereby they so hate coercion or so hate oppression that they lose sight of the entire picture and therefore lose the plot of the American project. So what I've tried to do here is to try to say, um, and I've just begun this exploration. I'm so sorry. We have to cut it short Mm -hmm. is that, um, there are a couple of moves that are necessary. One, we have to agree that we have an unworkable leadership class. The five final candidates for president of the United States were all born in the 1940s. We have never before Donald Trump had a president who at first to, inauguration. To be honest,
3: I preferred the, the, the final candidates in, in the last cycle. Yeah. <laughs> We had some good ones there. <laughs> Let me say on, the, on that. So, tempting. Eric, so hold on, tempting. I noticed Eric doesn't have a comment on this one. Let no, me no, no. say actually on that point. I, I'm a, I'm
1: or is he making a comment on well, that? No, no,
2: no. Here. We had a situation, quite honestly, if I'm, if I'm honest. Sure. Uh, I have to be honest that uh, one of the things that I liked best was when uh, you became animated um, because of the bizarre behavior of our current president. And I I know that for political reasons, uh, you have moved closer to him, but one of the great dangers of Donald Trump, and he's got certain benefits, which is that he's the first person to figure out how to come up the system Mm -hmm. by not playing the game. And we almost had that on the democratic side with Bernie Sanders, in a certain sense, we have a situation whereby Donald Trump was, um, you know, the The old song about, I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. So I uh, made a parody of it, which was, I know a young country that voted a Trump, uh, a Clinton to bump. We voted a Trump. We have now gone down a path where Donald Trump is a disaster with respect to the oral Torah of the United States. We have the written Torah, which is the constitution, but in Judaism, you also have the culture around it. And this man is so bizarre, so strange that he is destroying the relationship that many of us have with the country because he's actually a genius. He's an unbelievable strategist. Those tweets, they are not haphazard. They are not brain farts. They are very carefully designed. He knows exactly what he's doing, I believe. And in part, we have now created a culture whereby we are weaponizing these very exotic techniques instead of doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is being productive, trying to ensure freedom, making sure that we're taking care of the countries that rely on us for their protection, trying to be more decent, more more uh, circumspect. And I think it's absolutely imperative, for example, that we start to examine things. Which, I mean, I'm just racing to get to this. Mm-hmm. Um, we stumbled over this Jeffrey Epstein situation, mm-hmm. and I have not yeah. heard our Iago media ask the question, is Jeffrey Epstein attached, to the best of our knowledge, at the State Department, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, any intelligence service, and is there a reason that you are refusing to ask this question to the point that you can get no comment onto the record,
3: right? So so for what it's worth, I emphatically agree with you. What Jeffrey Epstein did, at least all of the evidence and testimony to date, is grotesque. It is offensive. and It it is a travesty of justice that that he died in his cell through whatever causes led to that. And, and I think there is an imperative that everyone involved, everyone complicit, be held accountable. And, and I think the question you're raising is an important Why one that needs to New be York asked. Why will the New York
2: Times or the Washington Post yeah. or Fox News ask the question, was this person attached to intelligence to the point where we can either get an emphatic, of course we would never do that, or uh, no comment? Now, if we can get either one of these things... And
3: for what it's worth in D.C., my sense is most people assume he was attached to intelligence. Well, now, I don't know of any, any evidence to that effect. I'm, but, and, no, but And it but, is a question I'm called a crazy that person. needs to be asked.
2: Now, I'm called a crazy person, for, you know, a conspiracy theorist, for saying, why aren't we talking more about the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Why aren't we talking... And we've had
3: whole podcast on that Why aren't we talking exactly more there? about
2: Jeffrey Epstein? Why yeah. are we not calling for a return to the Church and Pike committees of the 1970s To give us closure so that if we did nothing wrong we can know that we did nothing wrong Mm.
3: and the abuses of intelligence and law enforcement i think are a profoundly consequential point but but let me say this just just at a time of intense division at a time of tribalism and you're right atomized information atomized news sources partisan propaganda news sources social media, where we unfriend those who disagree and only listen to those who agree and have a constantly reinforcing ecosystem, I remain optimistic for our country. And I think what I hope what what has just just uh, uh, occurred in this podcast, which is having a reasonable, civil, productive conversation with those with whom we disagree, at least on some issues. Yeah. Uh, is is at the heart of the American experiment, who we should be as a democracy, and I hope is the path to emerge from tragedy in into I- I- instead the the uh, what I consider to be the hero's journey uh, of of our nation state and and America's journey towards a more perfect union and a more just society. So, thank you for coming. You said uh, beforehand into the lion's den. I hope the lions have at least uh, uh, <laughs> been cuddly. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that would be the case. <laughs> been hospitable and, yes. and and your ideas have been fascinating. And it's it's been it's been a great pleasure. Well, well said.
1: Chris,
2: thank you for inviting me.
1: It was very well said, Senator. Uh, of course, Eric. Thank you so much for being here. This point you've hit on about uh, one practical thing we could do to come back together. Is each of us, where appropriate, admit a failure or two, speaks to a a key virtue, which is humility. Unfortunately, probably lacking at the moment in the country, but the beginning of wisdom and very likely uh, uh, at least a a glimmer of hope for for the future of the country. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you both. I'm Michael Knowles. This is Verdict with Ted Cruz.
0: This episode of Verdict with Ted Cruz is being brought to you by Jobs, Freedom, and Security Pack, a political action committee dedicated to supporting conservative causes, organizations, and candidates across the country. In 2022, Jobs, Freedom, and Security Pack plans to donate to conservative candidates running for Congress and help the Republican Party across the nation. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: Laundry? Ooh, a book club!
0: Hollywood is under siege from an external force. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream is now making nightmares a reality. Many major films make choices to appease the Chinese Communist Party to be distributed in China. Join Tiffany Meyer, an investigative reporter in Hollywood Takeover, brought to you by the Epic Times where she reveals how the CCP exerts control over some major studios. Don't miss the most important documentary about Hollywood yet. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free at HollywoodTakeover.com Ben. HollywoodTakeover.com slash Ben. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. So to save, visit healthlock.com today. That's healthlock.com today.